Well, my name is Adam, and it's great to have you with us today. As we come to the final week in our sermon series through the Beatitudes, for the last little while, we've been looking at these eight sayings that Jesus gives in Matthew 5, where he describes life in the kingdom of God, where he paints a picture of the ordinary Christian life. And today we come to the final beatitude, which is perhaps the most surprising and shocking of all. Because Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted. Happy are the hated. Joyful are the insulted. Thrilled are the threatened. Now it's a surprising way to end this list, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I've got to be honest, if it was me, I'd probably do it a little bit differently. I might end with something encouraging or inspiring. I might end with love or hope. But Jesus knows far, 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 far better than I do. And Jesus knows if we follow him faithfully, if we live a life of loyalty to him, if we live a life marked by the Beatitudes, while we will be Blessed in the eyes of God, we will be hated and opposed by the world. Now, I wonder if you think this is reality for Christians in Australia today. I wonder if you think Christians in Australia today are persecuted. Now, it's an interesting question, isn't it? And over the last few weeks, I've been trying to ask this question of different groups of people to try to gauge the the different reactions And so I asked a group of guys that I meet meet with regularly the other week, and it was quite humorous because the guy sitting in front of of me immediately began to shake his head. The guy sitting next to him immediately began to nod his head. And the guy sitting next to me said, well, it depends. A wide range of responses in a very small group. And I wonder what you think. Some of you might say, yes, yes. You look at some of the the bills that have been passed in recent years, some of the the laws that have been enacted. You look at articles that are written on certain sites. You look at uh, Christians who are marginalized and pushed to the sides, whether in workplaces or universities. And you say, yes, Christians in Australia today are persecuted. Others, though, might say, no, Christians today in Australia are not persecuted. You would say, yes, our world is changing, divides are deepening, but no one is stopping us from worshipping Jesus. No one is locking us up for being a Christian. No one is beating us up and killing our loved ones like Curtie's story that we heard just a moment ago. Robin Whitaker is a lecturer at Pilgrim Theological College and she says this. She says, let us be clear. Christians in Australia are not being persecuted. They have the freedom to gather and worship, to meet in public places, to join the army, to teach, to vote, and to be prime minister. Christians own and run vast institutions. They are still the largest religious affiliation in the country. These are hardly the signs of a persecuted group. And you might agree. You might say Christians in Australia are not persecuted. They may be just a bit upset at their loss of respect and recognition. They're upset at their loss of status and influence. 
So which is it? Who has got it right? Well, Stephen McAlpine is a pastor in Western Australia, and last year he wrote a book called Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World that Says You Shouldn't. It's an excellent book. I recommend it to you. It actually won um, Australian Christian Book of the Year last year. And he says that the answer is a bit of both. He says, no, we're not obviously capital, capital P persecuted. No one's locking us up, torturing us, or, or killing us for our faith in Jesus. And to say that we are persecuted in this way would be insulting to our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who are treated in this way. And yet he also says it's true that in our country and in our day, Christians are increasingly being marginalized, being pushed to the edges of society. Or to use McAlpine's language, Christianity is increasingly being viewed as the bad guy. Not just an option to be considered, but a problem to be overcome. Christians are not just weird, a little bit strange, but they're actually harmful. Here's the way McAlpine puts it. He says, if this were a Western, we would be the guys wearing the black hats, whose appearance is accompanied by the foreboding soundtrack. It's come as a, as a surprise. We're not sure how it happened. We don't like it, and we don't feel like we deserve it, but we are the bad guys now. Here's a question. So what do we do about it? That's the question. What do we do about it? How do we respond? Well, we don't respond by running away, by retreating from the world so that we no longer have to take the hits. Nor do we respond by trying to be the good guy in the eyes of the world, because that would involve compromise in all different sorts of areas. McAlpine suggests the answer is to be the best bad guys that we can be. To not be surprised or confused or angry or afraid when we face opposition from those around us, but rather to find a way to be calm, kind, confident, even joyful in the midst of opposition and persecution. And this is exactly what Jesus calls us to do in this eighth beatitude. He helps us to understand how we should rightly respond. In fact, I think Jesus says three main things to us here in these verses that I'd like to explore today. The first, if you're taking notes, is this. It's don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Now, do you remember what I said all the way back in week one of this series? Of course you do, because you remember everything I say in every sermon. Now, I said, just for those that weren't here, the Beatitudes are not like a menu. We don't get to pick and choose the ones that we like and the ones that we don't like. Now, the Beatitudes are more like a position description. They describe what every Christian is called to be. They describe the pathway that every Christian must walk. And this is why Jesus, in verse 11, he doesn't say, blessed are you if people insult you, persecute you, and so on. He says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and so forth. In other words, it is going to happen. It is inevitable. To be a follower of Jesus means to follow in his footsteps. To walk the path that he walked, the path of rejection and hostility. If I was to put it another way, I would say, if you are a friend of Jesus, 
you will be bullied in the playground of this world. And you shouldn't be surprised by that. I mean, Jesus doesn't hide the reality of persecution in the fine print. He doesn't put it in the back of the Bible or in the the back of Leviticus, where, where many of us don't quite make it to. Now, Jesus says very clearly, very upfront in John 15, he says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. We follow a savior who was crucified. We follow a king who went to the cross. Why should we expect to be treated any better? It's the same thing we read in the rest of the Bible. For example, Peter, he was writing to a group of Christians who were being badly mistreated for their faith in Jesus. That's what he says. He says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, opposition for your faith in Jesus is not something strange. It's an ordinary part of friendship with Jesus. Paul says it very simply in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, everyone, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, not maybe, will be persecuted. Here's the point. Don't be surprised when people don't like you because of your faith in Jesus. Don't be alarmed when you are ridiculed at school, when you're mocked by your colleagues, when you're left out by your friends, even when you're rejected by your family. It's not a sign that God has abandoned you. It's actually a sign that God is with you because this is an ordinary part of friendship with Jesus. It reminds me a little bit of a scene from the brilliant uh, TV series, Band of Brothers, series about the US paratroopers in the Second World War. There's a scene when Lieutenant Richard Winters, he's about to lead his troops into the Battle of the Bulge and another soldier pulls him aside and says to him very ominously, looks like you guys are going to be surrounded. To which Winters replies without hesitation, we're paratroopers, Lieutenant. We're supposed to be surrounded. And it's the same for Christians. We're supposed to be surrounded. The Bible assumes it. Jesus modeled it. The apostles experienced it. The church in most times, in most places, and at most times has lived it. And the baton now passes to us. Let's not drop it because we're not ready for it. I think that's the biggest danger facing us in in the fairly comfortable country that we live in. It's not necessarily the reality of persecution, but it's the fact that we might not be ready for it. We might be surprised by it, shocked by it, derailed by it. Here's what McAlpine says. He says, if the church is bred on a diet of self-help books that try to convince us that God's intention is to make our lives as smooth as possible, we will be suckers in a hostile world. No wonder we become confused, angry, or despairing when the culture is throwing rotten tomatoes, not rose petals, at us. Don't be surprised. Now, I know this is easier said than done. This is easy to say on a Sunday, but harder to live on a Monday. I know that most of us want to avoid this. And we especially 
want to shelter our kids from this. In fact, I, I heard a story this week about a pastor and his young son named Daniel. And it was time for Daniel's parent-teacher interview. He uh, goes to a public school in the United States, but his uh, teacher was a lovely Christian lady. And she was praising Daniel. She was going on about how wonderful he was. But the pastor said it became obvious that she had something else to share with him. She was getting a bit uncomfortable. And so eventually she slid a piece of paper across the desk. And this piece of paper was part of Daniel's assignment. And it asked the question, what do you want all of your friends to know? And Daniel had written, I want them all to know Jesus. And she said to this pastor, she said, I know what you do for a living, so don't be offended. But I've noticed that Daniel shares his faith all the time, at every given opportunity, to all of his friends, regardless of their religious background. And the, the pastor kind of said, you know, and? I mean, is he being offensive? And she said, and she said no, 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 he, he's thoughtful, he's considerate. And he said, so what's the problem? And she said, I just think that kids are going to start to reject him. Now you can imagine, in that moment, that pastor was, I've got to get him out of there. I've got to put him in a Christian school. I've got to tell him to tone it down. I've got to tell him to stop it. But then he gets home and he realizes that if Jesus' words are true for us, then Jesus' words are true for our kids as well. And if Daniel gets rejected for this, Jesus says to him, well done. You are blessed. And so let me say to our high schoolers, if you are being thoughtful, considerate, respectful, but you're still getting some heat for your faith, Jesus says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Don't be surprised. It's the first thing that Jesus says to us. The second is this, and I want to warn you. It's not on the screen yet, so I'll warn you. This is not your normal sermon point. Here it is. Number one, don't be surprised. Number two, don't be a jerk. Now, obviously, Jesus does not say these words exactly. This is kind of my paraphrase of what Jesus says here because in these verses, Jesus very clearly gives us the reason we are supposed to face opposition for our faith in him. The reason we are supposed to endure persecution. And spoiler alert, it's not supposed to be because you are mean. It's not supposed to be because you love a fight. It's not supposed to be because you post snarky comments on social media. It's not supposed to be because you are harsh and dogmatic. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. He says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You see, sometimes when we are opposed by others, it's not because of righteousness. Sometimes it's because of unrighteousness. Sometimes it's not because of Jesus. Sometimes it's because of you and it's because of me. It's because we might be obnoxious or combative. It's because we might throw our opinions around without really listening or caring about others. It's because we might make derogatory comments about those who are different to us. 
And there's nothing Christ-like about that. That is opposition, that is persecution, not because of Jesus, but because of us. It's the same thing we see in 1 Peter chapter 4. Again, Peter's writing to Christians suffering persecution, and this is what he says. He says, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal. It should not be because you're doing something wrong. Then he adds up this other phrase on the end. He says, or even as a meddler. Now, this word meddler means to be a busybody. It means to be tactless. See, what Peter is saying, what Jesus is saying, when you talk about your faith, when you live out your faith, if you do it in a way that is tactless or antagonistic or abrasive or insensitive or condescending, then you cannot turn around and say, I am being persecuted for Jesus' sake. You're being persecuted because of you. Instead, Jesus says to us, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Now, what is this righteousness? Well, again, because you remember everything in every sermon, you remember the definition from week four. Remember what we said about righteousness? We said, someone's shaking their head. <laughs> They're honest, I like that. Righteousness is right relationship, which leads to right living. Right relationship with God, which leads to right living before God. Now, what does this right living actually look like? In the context of Matthew 5, it looks like the other seven Beatitudes. It looks like being poor in spirit. It looks like being meek, mourning our sin, showing mercy, pursuing purity, practicing peacemaking. It looks like all of those things. And you might say to yourself, well, why does a life like that attract opposition? I mean, couldn't our world do with a, little, a few more lives that look like that? Isn't that kind of life attractive to others? And the answer is, in a sense, yes, it is. I mean, Jesus goes on in the very next few verses to, to describe Christians as light, the light of the world. And he goes on to say, Matthew 5, verse 16, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds, your righteousness, and glorify your Father in heaven. There is a sense in which our righteousness, our good deeds, they can serve as a light to lead others to God. It's kind of like if you're in a dark room and you're lost and you don't know where to go and someone turns a light on, you can suddenly see where you need to go. And so light can be comforting, it can be clarifying, it can show us where we need to go. But isn't it also true that light can be confronting. It can expose us when we don't want to be exposed. I mean, if you're doing the wrong thing in a dark room and someone turns the light on, you're not drawn to that light. You are repelled by that light. And this is true about Jesus when he came into the world. People were both drawn to Jesus, drawn to his light, and they were repelled by it. This is what he said in John 3, 19 the much lesser known cousin to John 3.16. She says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Repelled by the light. And this was true for Jesus and it's true for followers of Jesus as well. When we practice righteousness, people are both drawn to it and repelled by it. Not because we're prickly or defensive or self-righteous, but precisely because we're not. Precisely because when you live a life that's marked by the Beatitudes, when you're humble, 
merciful, pure, peaceable, without even opening your mouth, your righteousness can be seen as an insult on those who live differently to you. So if you are humble when others are proud, if you mourn your sin while others justify their sin, if you're meek when others are defiant, if you hunger for righteousness while others thirst for the next pleasure, if you're merciful when others are vengeful, if you want to make peace when others want to make war, then you will be resisted by those around you. I mean, if you decide, I'm not going to drink as much as I used to, how's that going to go for you? Do you think your friends, your your old drinking buddies are going to say, wow, that's so enlightened of you. You do you. No, I think they'll say, are you saying I drink too much? Are you judging me? Do you think you're better than me? Of course, the answer is you don't, but it's going to come across that way to them. Or if you decide, I'm not going to participate in gossip at work anymore. How's that going to go with your colleagues? Do you think they're going to be understanding? Are you going to get invited to to coffee? I think more likely you'll be left out. Not because you're being a jerk, but simply because you want to be like Christ. See, people are both drawn to righteousness and repelled by it. And so the question is, well, what do we do? How, How do we respond? And this leads us to our third point. Jesus says to us, don't be surprised. He says... Well, Adam's paraphrase is, don't be a jerk. And then thirdly and finally, he says, don't despair. But actually, Jesus says something even stronger than that, because he doesn't just say to us, don't worry, don't despair, don't give up. He actually says to us, rejoice and be glad. Be happy, be joyful, leap for joy. Now, imagine someone comes to see me in my study tomorrow and they say, Adam, I'm having such a hard time at work. I'm being laughed at by my colleagues. I'm passed over for promotions. I'm left out of social events. I even have to eat lunch on my own. And it's all because I'm a Christian. Imagine I said to them, wow, that's amazing. I am so happy for you. Let's just say a prayer of thanksgiving to God right now. You would think that I'm being a bad pastor. And yet, isn't this what Jesus is saying to us in verse 12? He says, to those facing opposition, rejoice and be glad. Now, how can he possibly say this? What possible reason do we have to be joyful in the face of mistreatment? Because the truth is, we tend to respond the opposite way. When we see our freedoms being encroached upon, when we see Christians being mocked, when we see Christian views which were widely held until just a few years ago, being maligned and marginalized and dismissed, we tend to feel the pull towards anger and outrage and despair. And of course, there's nothing wrong with defending the the views and the freedoms that have contributed towards the building and the flourishing of our society. Praise God, there are gifted Christians working towards that end. But I think Stephen McAlpine is right when he says, too often, there is also a sense of rage among Christians giving the impression that what is going on is a zero-sum game, that if we don't win this culture war, everything is over. That is how earthly politics works, not God's kingdom. So the ultimate Christian hope is not the right political party in power. 
It's not the right laws being passed. The ultimate Christian hope is the return of the resurrected Jesus. It's the rule and never-ending reign of King Jesus. In other words, the Christian hope is a hope that transcends this world. It's what Jesus says twice in this passage. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. We are citizens of God's kingdom. And so let me ask a question. If, if full-scale, unfiltered persecution is realized in Australia, if be, being a Christian becomes illegal, would it be the end of everything? Would it be a total disaster for our kids and the next generation? Well, it would if this world was all that we had. But it's not. We are citizens of heaven. We have God as our Father. We have Jesus as our King. We have the Holy Spirit as our Helper. And we have the earth as our inheritance. We are so going to be okay. And so when laws are passed, when governments change, when others mock, we don't have to wring our hands. We don't have to get nervous or angry or outraged. As McAlpine says, anger or outrage are sure signs that the future joy guaranteed to us has fallen off our radars as we are insulted or sidelined or scorned. Listen to this. Reacting with joy is a better reflection of reality. That's amazing. Reacting with joy is a better reflection of reality because ultimate reality is the victory of Christ. Ultimate reality is the reign of Jesus. And you see, Jesus is not in heaven wringing his hands. Jesus is not saying, I'm so nervous about this upcoming election in Australia. He's not saying, I'm so upset by what these people are saying about me. He's reigning, he's ruling, and he's returning. And there is a day coming when every knee will bow before King Jesus and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And that's our hope. And so, you know, those men that beat Kirti in India, the, the story we watched a moment ago, I don't know if you picked it up, but they said to her, this is what you get for following Jesus. And they're right in a sense, this is what we do get. This is what we should expect. We should not be surprised by opposition. But of course, they were only half right because there is a day coming when Jesus will return and he will receive Kirti and those like her into his kingdom. He will even reward Kirti and those like her. It will be a kingdom of justice and peace and righteousness. And Jesus will say to Kirti, this is what you get for following me. And so what about you? As we come to the end of this series in the Beatitudes, I hope and I pray that this is not the end of your experience with them your pursuit of them. I hope that your life, my life, our church is marked by these beautiful attitudes. Now we will fail, we will fall, we won't always get it right, but Jesus continues to invite us into this blessed life, this true happiness, because Jesus himself is the ultimate fulfillment of these beatitudes. Because Jesus became poor in spirit, we can have the wealth of God's kingdom. 
Because Jesus mourned with tears, we can have the warmth of God's comfort. Because Jesus lost everything, we can inherit the earth. Because he cried out, I thirst, we can be satisfied. Because he is merciful, we can receive mercy. Because he is pure in heart, we can receive new hearts. Because he is the Prince of Peace, we can become peacemakers. And because he was persecuted and nailed to the cross, we can have an indestructible, imperishable hope for the future. Nothing and no one can separate us from God's love in Christ. And this is what you get for following Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this vision of the blessed life, of the truly happy life that we find in the Beatitudes. Lord, we ask and we pray that you would help us by the power of your spirit to become a people and a church marked by these Beatitudes. And Lord, we thank you most of all that the Lord Jesus is the fulfillment of them. And that even when we fall short, he calls us and he welcomes us and invites us into this life. And so Lord, would you fill us with a fresh understanding and awareness of your grace to us so that we might go from here to be your people marked by these beautiful attitudes for the good of others and the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for this closing blessing? We're going to finish with the words that we began with from Romans chapter 8. Nothing in all creation can separate us from God's love. So go from here with joy to love and to serve the Lord. Amen.